Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In one of John Wesley's most frequently preached sermons, The Scripture Way of Salvation, the Methodist leader sought to sum up his vision of the Ordo Salutis, that is the way of salvation, and correct certain misunderstandings of that rich vision. At one point, Wesley was concerned to stress that in the overwhelming experience of conversion, it was natural for those who go through conversion to imagine, quote, that all sin is gone, that it is utterly rooted out of their heart and has no more place therein. How easily do they draw that inference? I feel no sin, therefore I have none. But it is seldom long before they are undeceived, finding sin was only suspended, not destroyed. Temptations return, and sin revives, showing that it was but stunned before, not dead. They now feel two principles in themselves, plainly contrary to each other. The flesh lusting against the spirit, nature opposing the grace of God. Wesley then turned to a somewhat obscure 4th century monastic author, whom he calls Macarius. He is known to modern scholars as either Pseudo-Macarius, because his writings were transmitted under the name of Macarius of Egypt, and it's clearly not an Egyptian author, but as we will see, somebody living uh, in probably what is now Syria. Or sometimes he's described as Macarius Simeon, identified with a man named Simeon of Mesopotamia. We will simply call him Macarius. Wesley turns to Macarius to make the same point that he has just made, and he says this, How exactly did Macarius, 1400 years ago, describe the present experience of the children of God? And now he quotes from Macarius. The unskillful or unexperienced, when grace operates, presently imagine they have no more sin. Whereas they that have discretion cannot deny that even we, who have the grace of God, may be molested again. Wesley was introduced to a German pietist translation of Macarius' homilies in the colony of Georgia at the close of July 1736 by some Moravian friends. These were men and women who had crossed the Atlantic at the same time as uh, Wesley uh, in January of that year. Wesley so appreciated these homilies that he would later edit and reprint some of them in the first volume of his A Christian Library, which was a collection of Christian literature designed for his lay preachers. The major themes of the Macarian text available to Wesley did indeed nicely dovetail with the Methodist leader's interests. For in them, Macarius especially set forth the biblical dimensions and theological implications of the salvific work of the Holy Spirit and explored the experience of the believer, who though indwelt by the Spirit, nevertheless battles against indwelling sin. In this episode of Bede's podcast, these major themes of Macarius' theology and spirituality are explored, as they are found primarily in one collection of Macarius' homilies, Collection 2, which is known as the 50 Spiritual Homilies. There are actually four collections, 
and uh, so we're looking at one. It's probably the one that has been most uh, translated into English and is probably the most easily accessible to an English reader. But first, who is Macarius? While there is much that is unclear about Macarius, the author of these works, he appears to have been especially active between the 380s and the 14s. He had strong ties to Syriac Christianity, although his mother tongue was most likely Greek. He would thus have been very comfortable both the world and theological ambience of Syriac Christian life and piety and Greek Christian life and piety. And there are significant differences between those two worlds. His ministry seems to have been situated on the frontier of the Roman Empire in Upper Syria and in southern Asia Minor, or southern Turkey as we call it today, where he was the spiritual mentor of a number of monastic communities. Four collections of his homilies, as I've mentioned, are extant. In their history of reception, they've been historically linked to Messalianism, an ascetic movement that was condemned at various councils, including the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, as well as the earlier Synod of Sidi in Pamphylia in 395, which was interestingly presided over by Amphilochius of Iconium, the protege and close friend of Basil of Caesarea the famous Cappadocian theologian. According to those who condemned them, the Massalians argued that there was an indwelling demonic power in each human soul, and that only intense and ceaseless prayer could break the dominion that this demonic power held over the soul. Consequently, they were said to refuse to work so they could devote their entire time to prayer. They were also said to affirm physical experiences of the Spirit, and they were also said to make light of the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as well as the ministry of those in official positions of power. In the words of Robert Murray, the Massalians, quote, lay too much stress on the experience of the Spirit for the liking of ecclesiastics in the institutional church, end of quote. Although there are a number of clear points of contact between the Messalians and Macarius, especially with regard to Macarius's deep interest in the spirit, the burden of current scholarly opinion is that Macarius cannot be regarded as Messalian, something with which I would concur. Confirmation of this perspective of recent scholarship on Macarius's homilies is found in the strong connections of Macarius to the Cappadocians, in particular Basil and his brother Gregory Nyssa. For example, in Gregory Nyssa's On His Ordination, which he preached at the induction of his close friend Gregory Nazianzus as Bishop of Constantinople, he mentions that there were various ascetics at the ordination who, I think, can be plausibly identified with Macarius and some of his followers. They had actually come to Constantinople to attend the Council of Constantinople in 381, which would have passed what is uh, known as a, what we know as the Nicene Creed, but was actually a revision of the Nicene Creed, an expansion of the fourth, including an expansion of the fourth, or a third article on the Holy Spirit. Gregory has a deep admiration for these men, he says. Why? Because, like Abraham, quote, they have left their own country, their family, and the world at large. They look to heaven. They have cut, cut themselves off, so to say, from human life. They are superior to the passions of nature. They do not struggle with words. They do not study rhetoric. And here he's obviously thinking of himself and his friends. But they have such power over the spirits that they expel demons, not through the syllogistic arts, but through the power of faith. This deep admiration for Macarius on the part of Gregory Nessa is further evident in the fact 
that the Cappadocian father copied significant portions of one of Macarius's major writings, known as the Great Letter, and used it as the basis for his own introduction to Christianity. It was this connection with the Cappadocians that undoubtedly helped preserve Macarius's, Macarius's writings. Since they were orthodox, their interest and delight in his writings and their use of them must mean that he was essentially orthodox as well. Another key factor for the preservation of Icarus' writings was the fact that he shared with the Cappadocians a profound concern to defend the deity of the Holy Spirit. In general, the Macarian writings are profoundly Trinitarian, with a particular focus on the deity of the Spirit, which would situate them in the early 370s, 380s, 390s, during the Pneumatomachian controversy, that is the controversy about the deity of the Holy Spirit, which was really resolved at the Council of Constantinople in 381, where it was declared that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, and that he proceeds from the Father, and that he is to be worshipped and adored with the Father and the Son. For Macarius, as for the Cappadocians, the Spirit is uncreated and fully divine, for he is the one who brings us into union with God. Now, what I would like to do in this, uh, what remains in this podcast today and then next week, is look at his thinking about the human situation, the tragedy of the fall, the way in which we are led to Christ by the Spirit, and the way in which the Spirit enables us to successfully fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, in what remains today, I'm going to look at the tragedy of the fall, and then next week, we'll look at Macarius' views on, com- on conversion and sanctification and draw some significant conclusions from look at these, uh, these two episodes of Beat's podcast on Macarius. The awful devastation caused by the fall of Adam and the experiential reality of the tyranny of sin that ensued for his progeny as a result of Adam's disobedience regularly impressed themselves upon the mind of Macarius. Prior to the fall, Adam, Macarius said, was clothed with the glory of the Holy Spirit and thus knew the Spirit's personal instruction as well as that of the Word of God. The Word was everything to him, Macarius says. Adam lived in total purity, was pleasing to God in all areas of his life, and he had sovereign control over his thoughts and actions. When Adam disobeyed God's Word of his own free will, though, his disobedience became the doorway through which all kinds of evil were sowed in the world, as well as being the vehicle for the entrance of tumult, confusion, and battle into the inner being of men and women. After the fall, Adam and his descendants lost both God and their God-given beauty. But God, who was ever the lover of mankind, wept over his fallen creation, for they were now marred by corruption, spiritual ugliness, And Macarius now says, and he's very concrete in the way he describes uh, the human condition uh, outside of Christ, a great stench now emanated from their souls. Fallen men and women were now, in another of Macarius' most trenchant descriptions, they were now like, quote, houses of prostitution and ill fame in which all sorts of immoral debaucheries go on, end of quote dominating their lives as a love of this age and its passions and concerns. Instead of their maker being their Lord, Satan himself became their prince and ruler and filled their hearts with spiritual darkness. 
and ever true to his nature as a wicked tyrant, Satan did not spare any area of human existence from his deadly touch and control. The evil prince corrupted the human frame completely, not sparing any of its members from its slavery, not its thoughts, neither the mind nor the body. Now when men and women, according to Macarius, act under the impulse of these evils, they think they are doing so on the basis of their own determination. But the reality is that they are controlled by the dominion of sin. From Macarius' vantage point, every fallen human being is so under sin's dominion that he or she can, quote, no longer see freely, but sees evilly, hears evilly, and a swift feet to perpetrate evil acts. Although this extremely realistic view of the fall and its impact would appear to commit Macarius to a strongly determinist perspective regard to the human condition, in line with the voluntarism of, of Greek patristic thought, Macarius vehemently maintained that men and women ultimately commit evil of their own free will. They are not made to do so by any outside force, as it were. As he asserted on one occasion, our nature is capable of both good and evil, either a divine grace or of the opposing power, but never through compulsion. Now, how do you, how do you reconcile the commitment to the freedom of the will to uh, this dominion of sin in the interiority of the human life? Well, I think for Macarius, this ability to choose appears to extend solely to individual sinful acts. What individuals cannot do is to remove the deeply rooted interiority of sin itself. In other words, they can choose to do a particular sinful act or not, but ultimately their bent of their life is in a sinward direction. The dominion of sin with the human heart is far too strong to be defeated by human energy alone. It is impossible, Macarius stated on one occasion, to separate the soul from sin unless God should calm and turn back this evil wind, inhabiting both the soul and body. Again, as he put it elsewhere, without the Lord Jesus and the working of divine power, that is the Holy Spirit, no one can be a Christian. Well, next week, we look, uh, we'll look at uh, Macarius's uh, understanding of how men and women are broken out of this condition, how men and women are freed, and how they will eventually be led by the Spirit to battle sin, uh, indwelling, ongoing indwelling sin in their lives, but do so victoriously. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.